ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello, I'm Tom Gilson. Today on ID the Future, we hear the second half of Casey Luskin's debate with historian and philosopher Adam Shapiro on the topic, Is Intelligent Design Advancing? Casey is Associate Director of the Center for Science and Culture at the Discovery Institute. Their host for this conversation is Justin Brierley on the popular British debate program, Unbelievable. I'd just be fascinated to know, because I haven't really been able to tell, if I'm perfectly honest, just from looking at your bio and things, but do you do you hold any particular religious convictions yourself, Adam? You know, I, I am not a Christian. I grew up and I am a part of the Jewish tradition. Um, I don't think that that enters very directly into the historical scholarship that I do, um, except that I think that it does give me the perspective, having grown up as a religious minority in a country, as I think allowed me to uh, at least situate myself in the sense of sort of understanding how a diversity of religious interactions and philosophical interactions uh, can, can, can and do square together, um, and how they can interact over reasons that have more to do with external factors than necessarily the nature of specific ideas themselves. Um, now, I want to clarify something based on, on, on Casey's response, because I think um, he's right that some of the Christian critics of intelligent design do say essentially that it doesn't go far enough. But some of them, some of them also say it's going the wrong way. And to some extent, those critics are actually, in some ways, truer to a tradition of what some people would call the theology of nature um, that goes back for centuries, goes back really as to at least Aquinas, uh, in which the argument says, by understanding an argument for design in specific ways, or an argument for a creative, intelligent, and compassionate force in the universe, through certain forms of evidence as opposed to others, we end up being able to do better theology down the road. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to point to William Paley because I think he gets, uh, you know, I think his reputation is frequently maligned by sort of the, the by both people like uh, Richard Dawkins and Michael Behe and how they talk about them in their books. In fact, during the Dover trial that we keep alluding to, witnesses on both sides compared intelligent design to the work of William Paley um, in, in ways that I think actually do a disservice to the historical record. Um, for Paley, the argument really was that the world of created matter, so the objects that we see in nature, seem to show that they are well attuned to the natural laws. So there's two different things. There are natural laws, which are sort of fixed and immaterial, things like the law of gravity, the laws of optics. Uh, we might later on discover laws like the laws of heredity. We might eventually s discover certain laws in psychology or neuroscience as well. There are also physical objects in the world, things like eyes, things like ears, things like watches. And, we say, and what Paley says is essentially that the fact that the world of matter seems not just to to obey the laws of nature, but seems to in some ways have some prior awareness of those laws of nature, is the compelling evidence, not just that there was an intelligence designing 
behind that, but that that intelligence is unified across the whole universe. Um, it's the same laws of nature, whether we are talking about here on Earth or out in the heavens. It, you know, it's the same laws of gravity. It's the same laws of optics. And it is the same. So therefore, there is one God. There is a unit, you know, who is everywhere. Um, in Paley's view, the adaptation of these parts seems to produce a well-functioning and well-ordered society as well as well-functioning and well-ordered creatures uh, that he says in a kind of utilitarian way produces a, a surplus of happiness of well-being and this to him is proof that god is compassionate and good i think that even though paley paley considers arguments of sort of a more ad hoc how could could we argue from what Casey refers to as the negative arguments of intelligent design, which is to say the arguments that say this thing couldn't have come into being on its own. Therefore it must've come into being some other way. Part of what Paley says is a God who would create in these obscure ways is not a God that we as, as human beings are capable of knowing more about. Um, and so there are at least some Christians who in Darwin's day, um, really loved the idea that evolution was a mechanism and a process through which the world was created. Charles Kingsley was one of the leaders in the Anglican Church in the 1850s and 60s. A friend of Darwin's wrote to him and said, I think that this view is at, not just at least as compatible as the idea of the special creation of different species, but may even provide a more glorious and noble vision of who God is. And so, so were you saying, Adam, that 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 Paley, in that sense, could have been sort of quite open to an evolutionary understanding because it 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 wasn't completely at odds with his idea of the the fitness of things, the way everything bring comes together in that sort of way. I've argued that there are definitely some versions of theistic evolution that I think are following in Paley's tradition, people like Kingsley and, and Frederick Temple and a few other uh, leaders in the Anglican Church in the immediate aftermath of Darwin's day, um, I think are carrying forth that tradition. Um, the only time Paley is criticizing theories of evolution, which were around in his own time, um, he, he does so really to say that the problem is the idea that, that there are no final causes in this picture. He's thinking particularly of Buffon, where you have sort of the spontaneous ex nihilo creation of new life, um, and of Erasmus Darwin, which is a more evolutionary picture, um, but which is one in which the created world itself is given the power of agency. Um, in other words, creatures sort of mm -hmm. will themselves into higher forms of evolution. And, and Paley didn't quite like that. I will say also that the one time Paley is mentioned by name in Darwin's Origin of Species, mm, he's not mm. criticizing Paley. He's yeah. using Paley as evidence in support of his argument. Because one of the concerns that Darwin raised was what he calls utilitarian objections, that, that a, a theory of natural selection causes so much suffering and pain and death to refine species that it seems like a philosophically miserable world and he says paley has shown that most most adaptations in the natural world are to the benefit of the creatures that have them 
So that's the one time he mentions Paley by name in the origin of species. It's all it's all fascinating background to the, the in the historical context, you know, and that's all important. In a way, of course, Casey, you know, neither Paley nor Darwin knew what we know now about the the way you know the DNA functions, and and in a sense, you know, he only saw a a, a glob of goo, you know, and and. Uh, he had this in, insight, but your argument, I suppose, Casey, you know, and as I understand it, the intelligent design movement generally has been that the more we've learned about the way life, in fact, does arise and the kind of complexity that, that exists, that the harder it is to to apply a simple kind of Darwinian mechanism to how that complexity arose. Um, so and I've I've had conversations of various kinds. So, you know, this is one way of doing it. I've I've had um people from the kind of so called third way, you know, the James Shapiro's and others, the those who are people who are questioning um the kind of neo Darwinian synthesis, but they're not sort of necessarily in the intelligent design camp. That so so the picture is always more complex and it's sometimes spelled out in the popular media and, and, and I'm not going to attempt to to have all the perspectives represented on any single show. But but Casey, this is your I suppose your opportunity to kind of bring us up to speed with the way you think, you know, that's the history there and, and Adam's very helpfully nuanced it and said it's not always as simple as some some of the, you know, popular level readings are uh, put it. But but where do you think we're at now? And yeah, this is your chance to tell us about who you think is actually crossing the line to the kind of intelligent design side of the the, the the pew if you like sure so i mean i i would say that i'm not a paleo expert i'm not here to argue theology but i can tell you that we are discovering many things using intelligent design in fact id has had a scientific renaissance since the dover trial over 100 peer-reviewed papers have been published in uh scientific journals and id has been transformed into a full-blown active research program uh we call it id 3.0 and we're funding multiple projects that are showing how intelligent design makes testable predictions and can serve as a guide or heuristic in a variety of different fields. And I can highlight some of the projects that we're funding right now. Uh, one of the projects we're funding is uh, using intelligent design to build nanomachines that can kill cancer, bacteria, and even viruses. And this has implications for evolving the first cell. And papers from this published have been published. Papers from this project have been published in journals like Nature, um, ACS Applied Materials, and Nature Nanotechnology. Um, one of the predictions of intelligent design is that we will find new layers of information and code in biology. And so one of the key interests of intelligent design is how information might be compressed. And we've been funding research into what we call overlapping genes, where there might be multiple overlapping reading frames where a, along a single strand of DNA, there are three reading frames on the sense strand and potentially three more on the anti-sense strand. So that means that along any stretch of DNA, you could have up to six different reading frames encoding six different proteins. This would be like having a sentence that has meaning, but if you start the sentence at one letter over from the beginning of the sentence, you get a new sentence with a totally different meaning. Or if you read it backwards, you find that there's a totally different sentence that comes out. This would uh, imply a huge level of information compression and new layers of code. And we are finding these overlapping genes do exist in biology. It's really difficult to understand how an unguided process could produce this level of information compression. And we, we're, we've published papers from this project in journals like Scientific Reports, Frontiers in Microbiology, uh, Biosystems, 
BMC Evolutionary Biology, and Molecular Biology and Evolution. We even used this project to identify a protein in the SARS-CoV-2 genome that no one else had identified, okay? So we are actually helping you to contribute to the efforts to combat COVID because ID predicted we would find things like overlapping genes in the genome, whereas an unguided evolutionary perspective didn't expect to find that kind of information compression. Um, another project we're funding is called the Waiting Times Project, where we're looking at whether or not there's enough time in the fossil record to evolve new complex features like eyesight or feathers or whale adaptations for an aquatic lifestyle. Uh, this paper, this project published a paper in the Journal of Theoretical Biology last year, uh, uh, authored by Ola Holster, a mathematician at the University of Stockholm in Sweden, another high-level convert to intelligent design. Uh, Gunter Beckley was another co-author on this paper. Gunter Beckley is an interesting case. He's a paleontologist in Austria who was the was a curator of invertebrate fossils at a major uh, museum in Germany. And he was preparing the 2009 bicentennial Darwin Day exhibit for this museum. He was a full-blown Darwinist. He did not have any, you know, support for intelligent design. And as he was preparing this exhibit, he wanted to show that the weight of the evidence was against intelligent design. So he started reading ID books, and lo and behold, he realized that many of the supposed refutations of intelligent design that he had heard didn't hold up, that the argument was actually very much on the side of intelligent design. So he ended up uh, becoming a supporter of intelligent design, first privately and then later publicly. And uh, Justin, you mentioned that it's very difficult for ID proponents who are sort of out of the closet to survive in the academy. That's absolutely correct. As soon as Gunter Beckley came out publicly as an ID proponent, he became he was subject to uh, harassment and various forms of uh, marginalization and persecution at the museum he was at in Germany, and eventually he was forced to resign. He now works with us at Discovery Institute, and he's a great guy, a lot of fun to work with, and he's helping to oversee this Waiting Times project. And by the way, if you think that intelligent design arguments are not making an impact, two of the three most popular articles from the Journal of Theoretical Biology, a very mainstream journal over the last couple years, were about intelligent design arguments, okay? One of them was this article about the waiting times, creating a mathematical model, seeing if we can test the evolvability of various structures. And another paper by Ola Hoster and Steinar Thorvaldsen came out in September of 2020, which basically reviewed arguments for intelligent design, both at the fine-tuning of the universe and also fine-tuning in biology. And these papers have gained a lot of traction. There's been a lot of interest in these. Uh, so I, I, we have to say there is a real scientific dialogue going on over intelligent design, mm. and we are making real scientific uh, converts. I'll give one last example because I, mean, I could go on for days both about the people that are coming out of the woodwork supporting intelligent design, and I'm, I'm talking literally just about the tip of the iceberg. For every public ID proponent that there is, Justin, I, I'm not exaggerating when I say this. There are dozens and dozens of private ID proponents, some of them at some of the very highest levels of the scientific community, including Nobel Prize winners, who are afraid to come out publicly and say that they sympathize with ID arguments. Okay, There are many people okay. who are afraid to speak out. But one of the other give us your final example. The projects yeah, were, yeah, one of the other projects is called the Engineering Research Group, where a large consortium of over 50 biologists and engineers are coming together, applying principles from the field of systems biology. Where basically biologists are realizing that if you view bio biological systems as being designed in a top-down manner rather than having evolved gradually in a bottom-up manner, then you can make more sense of what is going on in biology. Essentially viewing bio bi biological systems as teleologically endowed and designed from the top down 
gets you much further in terms of understanding biology. And so we're seeing this in terms of testing ID um, arguments that we can find function for junk DNA, a successful prediction of intelligent design, and making sense of how molecular machines like the bacterial flagellum operate. We go on and on about the, the successful testable predictions of intelligent design. This is literally, I've given you four examples out of, uh, let's see, 18 different uh, research projects that are actively going on right now in the ID movement. And there's a very active research program. And I would encourage folks, especially if you're a student, to check out Discovery Institute's summer seminar on intelligent design. It's a great way to learn more about these projects and get involved with ID research. Okay. Okay, Casey, brilliant, thank you. Okay, so, so a lot of examples given there, Adam, of, of people, projects, research that's going on. As far as Casey says, this all amounts to very much intelligent design is, is not in retreat, it is advancing. Um, so yeah, what, what's your perspective on that? So I, I don't want to speak to the specific merits of any, mm. of any scientific paper because I want to stay within my own lane and I'm not a biologist, I'm not a molecular scientist. This is... That that's not something I'm. I, there are plenty of other people I think who are much more qualified to speak to the to the merits and implications of those papers um, than than I will, and I'm not going to speculate it, about it. But if you recall at the beginning, I mentioned the idea that there's a lot of slipperiness in terms of what what we call intelligent design. There's the theological slipperiness between people saying intelligent design is anything that's not atheism or intelligent design is anything that's not explicitly biblically oriented Christianity. Um, but there's also a broader sense in which intelligent design um, is doing both the work of argumentation for the existence of a designer and the work of sort of illustration. And this is actually something um, I know Casey, Casey kind of appreciated the historical background. The, the coda to that historical background is that over time, and especially in the period after Darwin, what we call natural theology began to look a lot less like arguments for and against or uh, the, a God and about the nature of God and looked a lot more like if you will, kind of religiously respectable versions of popular science, popular science for Sunday school, if you will. Um, in other words, a lot of things that really, and in some cases, recycled old works of natural theology um, to discuss the many rich examples from that, from that work, um, from Paley, from John Ray, and from so on, um, and said, here's an example of this amazing thing in nature, and then saying, and the Lord God, God doth create create it all. Um, and there's sort of a rhetorical move between saying, here is this amazing and impressive thing, the wow factor, this attempt to sort of go right past the logical argument and appeal directly to sort of something deeper inside of you and say, here is this amazing thing that is happening. And here is this thing that we're doing science to understand. We're understanding more about cosmology. We're understanding more about biology. And to me, that means that God's behind it all, right? Um, from the point of view of these kinds of um, sort of pious popular science, this was, a, this was a rhetorical move. The idea was you weren't you convincing the atheist or the non-believer. What you were doing was you were providing a background in science to people who were already sort of within a certain faith tradition. I think that to some extent, and, and Casey, I, th I think at least in some of the examples that you cited, you said, here is this prediction that we make, which is a scientific bit of evidence. And then you say, and therefore there can be no way that this could have originated except but for some sort of supernatural intelligence. And 
I think some critics would say that there is a little bit of a slip between the here is the illustration of nature that is this impressive, amazing thing, these these overlapping genes, um, and then to say that therefore, because the world is so amazing, there is a designer behind it. Um, I think that there is a danger of that, whether it is something that the people who are publishing these papers are intending or whether this is how the people who are working from these papers are reading. Yeah, I mean, if if that is what intelligent design we're arguing, I would disagree with it as well, Adam. And I would encourage our listeners right now to pause the YouTube video, go back to how I articulated the argument for design at the beginning of this show and see if it matches the way Adam just described it. I, I hate to say it, but that is a straw man caricature. In fact, it's the exact straw man caricature that Judge Jones used in the Dover trial, which was also a blatant, um, inaccurate description of how intelligence design operates. Every one of these uh, projects, these peer-reviewed or these uh, research projects I'm talking about is finding evidence of specified complexity in nature. And we observe from our observations of the world around us that specified complexity derives from an intelligent source. I'm not saying that I can prove to you that a supernatural being created uh, the bacterial flagellum. What I am saying, though, is that in our experience, the kind of information and complexity, the language-rich code that encodes the bacterial flagellum, the irreducibly complex molecular machinery that the flagellum entails. In all of our experience with a flagellum, um, or with the origin of that kind of information and complexity, it always traces back to a mind or a personal agent. Now, if I were to go further and say that, you know, it's a divine designer, I would be going beyond what the raw evidence from nature can tell us. But we do know from our observations of the world around us that High levels of specified complexity, language-based code, uh, machine-like structures always derive from an intelligent source. So I'm arguing for an intelligent cause. I'm not saying we can go further. And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to pick on you, Adam, there, but I do feel like it's important to be very precise. Uh, the principle of charity and, and sort of letting your opponents define their own position is very important. I think you're a very decent guy, Adam. Of everything I've seen about you, you're a very thoughtful guy. But unfortunately, there's a lot of misinformation about intelligent design out there, and it's very to slip into saying that, you know, we're arguing uh, that because this is complex, therefore, supernatural God did it. I'm not saying that you can make that argument. I'm saying, though, that you can conclude that this feature of nature had an intelligent cause. And and I, I guess I want to note from you, Adam, and feel free to, to make your own response, but... but this is for me at the center of the intelligent design claim uh, is is that there's equally an, an equal and opposite sort of perspective which is the, the let's say the richard dawkins sort of perspective that uh, evolution science and so on supports atheism you know that, that there's equally a kind of atheistic perspective that that kind of goes along with so for, for me that the the question is can is is there not equally the, the the danger that there's going to be scientists out there who simply dismiss any you know for where design is not allowed on the table because they've got a atheistic presupposition about the world that, that it has to have some naturalistic cause um other and so on there is that danger if you like of a kind of almost semi-religious perspective from that side just as much as there might be a danger of it from a christian who wants to see design in everything at the same time I think, and I and I and I want to maybe maybe take a take a step back to clarify a little bit because I, I certainly don't mean to distort what Casey is saying. His own arguments are, and I want to say that I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing if the proponents of intelligent design become essentially something like the kinds of 
religiously inflected science popularizers that we have seen both in the past and we do see also in the present. Um, and I think that some of the articles that are published on the Discovery Institute's Evolution News website uh, really do have that flavor, where it's not necessarily about making a specific argument for the, I'm sorry, the complex specified information. I keep wanting to say CSI as if this were a crime show. Um, <laughs> but, um, but a lot of them also look like the flavor of, here we are trying to present to you a primer on science, which in itself is not necessarily controversial to an audience that we have access to that other people might not have access to, or who will take information from us more seriously. I think that is a really valid thing, especially in the current climate where we are in, where information about public health um, is, is unfortunately politicized. And, um, in which people might not might not be willing to understand how vaccines work, but might read Michael Behe explaining how vaccines work on Evolution News. I don't take that a post like that as necessarily being an argument about for or against intelligent design as much as taking advantage of a platform that the Discovery Institute has. That's something that, so when I was saying this is something that natural theology has done in the past, what I'm saying is, is that I think that that's actually in some ways, if we want to look at a place where intelligent design advances, it might be a question of using and leveraging the platform that it has um, in, in that way. I do think that um, in terms of the public outreach and in terms of the wider public interest, uh, we do see a lot less discussion of intelligent design in sort of the mainstream media, in the news, uh, than we did during the height of the Dover trial. You know, I, I, I sometimes joke that I have a Google News Alert set up for intelligent design. And aside from news articles put out by the Discovery Institute, almost everything I see there is describing a new car or new linens or teaching me about interior decorating, which is fantastic. I love learning about that stuff. In fact, um, Casey, you said that there's you're, you're doing ID 3.0. I think Volkswagen has a car called the ID4, which is actually using the phrase intelligent design. I think I, this, this shows up in my spam box all the time. Um, but I think the, the flip side of that news alert is to say people aren't talking about intelligent design in the public sphere as much as they were 15 years ago. And Casey, I'd be well, curious to hear from you why that is. Well, let, let's come back to that after a quick break, Casey, um, just out of time in this section of the show. Um, and yes, it'd be interesting to hear whether whether that, you know, whether the fact that obviously things have quietened down a bit in the, the public sphere since Dover um, bespeaks, you know, the, the whole area sort of going through a lull or not. Obviously, from what you said, you don't think that's the case, but we'll come back to it. Um, we're talking about the intelligent design movement on the advance or in retreat. We've been asking today, my guests are Casey Luskin and Adam Shapiro. We'll be back in just a moment. We've been talking about intelligent design on the show today. Uh, I am going to make sure there are links to both my guests uh, from today's show. You can find out more about Casey uh, at the Discovery Institute and the Comprehensive Guide to Science and Faith that he has edited from his website. That's caseyluskin.com. Uh, you can find links to uh, Adam Shapiro's new book, the second edition of Science and Religion, a very short introduction from today's show as well. So do make sure to go and check those out, uh, get a hold of their books. Um, in that last section, Casey, uh, Adam was just saying that he, he does, though, 
just at a general level in the public sphere, he sees a lot less alerts when it comes to intelligent design. You know, not as much interest in the whole area since uh, the Dover Kitzmiller trial and so on. Is that just a factor of the news cycle moving on? Or do you think it does sort of perhaps suggest that, you know, people have kind of moved on a bit from intelligent design? What, what do you make of that, Casey? Well, I mean, I, I do agree with, with Adam that there are fewer calls from the New York Times, you know, per month on average uh, at Discovery Institute than there was in 2005 when the President of the United States endorsed teaching intelligence design in public schools. And that, that <laughs> certainly created a lot of hubbub and, and a lot of controversy. So, I mean, absolutely, Adam, you're right that uh, maybe in the, as far as the news cycle goes, ID doesn't appear quite as much, but that does not mean that an interest in intelligent design is waning, especially from the people where it really matters. Um, I would say if you want to take superficial criteria like the science press or the popular press, then maybe one could argue that, that ID is in retreat since Dover. If you only look at the number of newspaper articles or Google searches, but if you want to look at other, if you want to talk about SEO stats, let's look at other metrics to look at popular interest in ID on the internet. Just before Christmas of 2021, Stephen Meyer, uh, one of the leading ID theorists, had five videos on intelligent design that came out at Prager University, intelligent design and science faith issues. Uh, that, just about, you know, that's a little over three months uh, since those came out. They have a combined total of over 8.8 .8 million views since that time. Discovery Institute's YouTube channel has quite a few series. Our Science Uprising uh, series has over 3.4 million views. Our five molecular machine animations have over 1.4 million views. Uh, Discovery Institute's John West produced a documentary titled Human Zoos, which explained the historical use and misuse by, of evolution to justify repugnant racist policies in the USA. It has over 3.5 million, million views and won awards at the African World Film Do uh, Documentary Film Festival, the Oregon Documentary Film Festival, Cinema World Fest Awards, and the Hollywood Independent Documentary Awards. So, uh, you know, if you want to gauge ID's interest just by the number of New York Times articles that come out, I don't know if that's the right uh, way to do it. Um, Stephen Meyer's uh, 2013 book, Darwin's Doubt, was a New York Times bestseller. Okay, so we've seen huge successes in intelligent design in the post-Dover world. Um, meanwhile, ideas spreading to other countries. In May of this year, there's a conference taking place at the Weizmann Institute in Israel, where high-level ID proponents and ID critics and folks, everything in between, are going to be discussing um, important topics like the fine-tuning of the universe, the origin of the genetic code, and the origin of proteins. And two Nobel Prize winners are speaking there. Um, right now, as we speak in Africa, one of our fellows, Paul Nelson, is on a tour of Nigeria and Kenya, where interest in intelligent design is growing by leaps and bounds. He's speaking to various academics at universities there right now. And in Brazil, over the past uh, five or so, six years, we've seen a number of Brazilian ID congresses hosted, uh, headed by Marcos Eberlin, who is a member of the Brazilian National Academy of Sciences, another high-level convert to intelligent design, one of the world leaders in the area of mass spectrometry. And he's helped organize these Brazilian ID congresses that regularly get dozens, if not over 100 scientists at them. Uh, and because there's more academic freedom in Brazil on this topic than other countries, the scientists there have the freedom to go and actually participate. And they're doing research uh, in Brazil right now on, on some ID projects, redoing the Stanley Miller experiment, looking at the human versus chimp proteome. So there's a lot of exciting um, activities for intelligent design going on around the world. And I would say if we just look at the superficial metric of, you know, uh, New York Times articles, you're not going to get the, a really complete picture of what's going on in intelligent design. You, you don't look too enthusiastic about it, though, Adam. Well, I, mean, I honestly am excited. Well, well, Casey is. I can see you're excited, Casey. But Adam, Adam, you don't look uh, like you're, you're too enthusiastic about all these advances. 
I, I, it's not a question of enthusiasm. I think it's a question of um, what we're reading into those metrics. I think that the getting beyond the metrics, I think there is this question about both um, how intelligent design is used in the public sphere. And I think when you asked, when you first approached me and, and asked the question about is intelligent design in advance or in decline, um, one of the real questions I had sort of unpacking that was whether we were talking about the way that people who are researching and doing the work that, that Casey and his group at the Discovery Institute are doing, um, consider the consider their work mm. uh, versus is it an advance or in decline in a larger public sphere? Um, given everything we know about social media metrics, I'm a little bit wary of sort of touting those numbers. I think we've, we've seen plenty of debates and about how algorithms feed that sort of material. Um, but more importantly, I think, is that whether this is an advance or in decline is to recognize that, um, you know, as, as we say frequently in our book, sometimes the changes that happen with issues in religion and science change not because of new discoveries in the science or new ideas in the religion. They change because the political and social circumstances change. And I think the world of today looks very different than the world of 2008 when the book came out of a few years earlier when the dover trial concluded um probably most important for those of us in the united states at least is that the legal questions about what place religion or science have in the classroom is being reshaped uh by new ways of thinking about religious freedom that the courts have been ruling on in recent years one of the real debates that were was going on in Dover was about whether intelligent design counted as a science, not because there's a law that says you have to teach science, but because the courts had settled on a principle that said a way for us to tell whether or not something constitutes an inappropriate government endorsement of religion is whether or not the thing that they're endorsing is or isn't a science. So the debate over science and demarcation became a proxy for the constitutional debate about religious establishment. Over the past few years, I think we have seen the direction that American courts have been taking has shifted away from focusing on this establishment clause restriction and more on expanding the notion of religious freedom to give individual teachers and individual school boards a wider latitude of saying that they will teach things as it squares with their personal religious beliefs. Now, this raises some questions when those individuals are acting as agencies of the state and how the balance between the establishment clause and the free exercise clause uh, is negotiated. But I think, I think we can both agree that the courts clearly have been expanding the view of the, the, the scope of the free exercise clause in recent years. Um, that, that, that religious freedom is being viewed not only as a fundamental right, which it always has been, but that it is in some ways a more fundamental right than, say, certain laws that are protect, that protect civil rights. Um, and so we can debate over whether or not that's good policy. What I think that has done, though, is reduced the legal necessity for something that looks like a science to be proposed as an alternative to evolution for teachers in the classroom. So it doesn't really matter whether intelligent design is a science. If a biology teacher in a high school here in Pennsylvania doesn't want to teach evolution, they have 
probably a little bit more latitude to get away with doing that without explicitly saying, here is the scientific alternative I want to teach. And in the absence of that legal necessity, I think we are seeing less of a need for people. I'm not to sure. Look at, I mean, yeah, I do advise a lot of teachers on how to teach the issue. For example, the Levate case said that if a teacher does not want to teach evolu evolution because of whatever their views are, they can be required to do that by a an administrator. Academic freedom is very limited for K through 12 public school teachers. Uh, the Epperson case eff effectively said that if you don't teach evolution, you're going to be viewed with extreme suspicion of having religious motives and unconstitutional motives. So uh, I would be, as an attorney, I'd be wary to tell a teacher, you know, I tell them that they should teach evolution and they should teach it objectively, teach the evidence that's in the curriculum supporting evolution, but also teach the evidence that challenges evolution, but don't get into intelligent design. That's basically what we advise teachers. Uh, but I mean, I agree with you that there have been shifts in the culture, Adam, absolutely. But I think that intelligent design is not going away. The, the amount of interest we see from students and scientists that are coming out of the, the, you know, the woodwork to contact us at Discovery Institute, the 600 plus students that have gone through our summer seminar, many of them now junior faculty, PhDs, postdocs that are doing ID research. What this tells me is that the fundamentals of the intelligent design movement are very strong and that intelligent design is not going away. So I don't know. I can't predict the future. I don't know what's going to happen in political debates or science religion debates in the future. You probably have a better read on that than I do, Adam. But I can definitely say that intelligent design is going to be a part of those conversations because we are growing as a movement. Our research program is growing. We're publishing peer-reviewed papers more and more every year. Our peer-reviewed publication rate almost has an exponential shape when you look at the number of papers we publish each year. So I'm very bullish on the future of intelligent design. And I, you know, whatever the New York Times has to say, uh, I think our fundamentals are sound. Hmm. Final thoughts, Adam, from you? You know, I, I, as a historian, I am always wary of trying to uh, look in the other direction temporarily. Uh, I, I agree that when we get around to a third edition, there will still be discussion of intelligent design. I, I think that that will still be part of the conversation that we are having. Yeah, I'm sure. And I'm sure we'll have it again here on Unbelievable. But for now, thank you very much, Casey and Adam, for being with me. Again, links links to both the books that we've mentioned. Uh, you can you can find Casey's book, uh, The Comprehensive Guide to Science of Faith, uh, with a link from today's show at his website. And likewise, you can find uh, the co-authored book by Adam Shapiro, uh, The Science and Religion, a very short introduction uh, links to that as well. But for now, Casey and Adam, thanks for being Thank with you. me. Thank you so much. That was the second half of a debate between Discovery Institute's Casey Luskin and Adam Shapiro on the unbelievable program at Premier Christian Radio in Britain. They were hosted by Justin Brierley. We thank Premier Christian Radio for permission to use this material. For ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.